As I speak now at the beginning of the Saturday broadcast of Reflections from Asia, it is mid-morning in the states of Australia and the islands of New Zealand. Many Australians and New Zealanders have been rising early in order to take part in dawn services or ceremonies, or even to take part in dawn marches. For it is April 25, 2015, exactly 100 years since the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, the ANZAC, struggled ashore on the beaches of the Gallipoli Peninsula in what was to become known as Anzac Cove, on the northern side of the Dardanelles Straits separating Europe from Asia. Most years since 1915. Dawn marches, dawn services and ceremonies, plus larger daytime processions and gatherings, have all commemorated the memory of the Anzac Valor in what turned out to be an epic defeat. In four or five hours' time later on this day, Australia and New Zealand visitors will be participating, along with Turks, in ceremonies near the same beaches where there was so much carnage a hundred years ago. The desire to attend has been so considerable that a special ballot for tickets had to be conducted in order to limit the numbers attending. On April twenty-fifth, nineteen fifteen, there were also separate Gallipoli landings by French soldiers and by a numerically larger force of British troops from the army's twenty-ninth division. All three landings were heavily opposed by the Turks. Whether there will be any commemorations in France or Britain, like the Anzac ones, is not known. At many of the Anzac commemorations this weekend, the atmosphere will tend to be sombre, with verses from Lawrence Binion's poem "For the Fallen" almost certain to be read, as it has been traditionally. They went with songs to the battle. They were young, straight of limb, true of eye, steady and aglow. They were staunch to the end against odds uncounted. They fell with their face to the foe. They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. But when the Gallipoli operation was first mooted in 1915, it had quickly become the focus of high hopes. The First World War began in August 1914, but by the end of that year, the conflict had already bogged down into inconclusive trench warfare and high casualties. By the end of the year, Britain and France had already suffered a million military casualties. Russia, badly in need of increased arms supplies, was unable to pull its weight in the alliance against Germany and Austria. Against this background, Winston Churchill, then as First Lord of the Admiralty, the politician in charge of the Royal Navy, conceived of a Dardanelles campaign, which could both help Russia and diminish the German alliance with Turkey. But this was in days long before the importance of combined operations by all three armed services had been recognised. Churchill's vision only carried weight in the navy. The following passage is taken from Winston Churchill in an intimate portrait by Violet Bonham Carter, who was a close personal friend of Churchill throughout his life. 
She was the daughter of H. H. Asquith, who was Liberal Prime Minister from 1908 to 1916. Quote, the epic story of Gallipoli is one I cannot hope to tell dispassionately. I lived through others at its core. I saw it through the eyes and felt it through the heart of Winston, who conceived it, of my brother and close friends who fought on the peninsula from first to last, of my father who believed in and supported it throughout. I shared with them its glories and its setbacks, its high hopes and the heartbreak of its final failure. Personal emotion may have blurred my vision, but I saw it then and still see it as the most imaginative conception of the First World War and one which might, had all gone well, have proved the shortest cut to victory. For had we forced the Dardanelles in 1915 or 1916, we could have got arms through to Russia. She might not have signed a separate peace and the Russian Revolution might not have happened as and when it did, though ultimately inevitable, it might have taken a different form. This tragedy of wasted opportunity was born of divided councils, military and naval, and exploited by political prejudice. Winston no doubt made tactical mistakes owing to impatience and to his imperviousness to the state of other people's minds. But his instinct was throughout a true one, and he never swerved from it. He was seeking to find a way around the deadlock of trench warfare, which apart from its futility was exacting a deadly toll in lives. We had a million casualties in the first three months of the war. Why should the new armies, in Winston's phrase, be sent to chew more barbed wire? From the outset of the war, Winston's imagination had been fired by the idea of forcing the Dardanelles. Unquote. This reminds that the Dardanelles campaign remains one of the great ifs of recent world history. If the Turks had been defeated, if Constantinople had been taken, if arms and other support had flowed to Russia's Tsarist regime, would the Russian Revolution have been aborted or would Stalin's Soviet Union have been avoided? Well, probably not. The Tsarist regime may have been too tied to its own rigidities and beyond strengthening. But... Bonham Carter is probably correct in suggesting that had the Grand Alliance with Russia been strengthened, it would have had a beneficial impact on European and Russian history. But there can be no quibbling with her stress on wasted opportunity and divided councils being ultimately responsible for the Dardanelles disaster. It is impossible not to look at the debacle through World War II eyes. Churchill had the brilliant idea, but he simply did not have the authority. Prime Minister Asquith liked the idea of forcing the Dardanelles, but he did not energetically advocate it. Lloyd George might have put his energy behind it, but he did not become Prime Minister until long after the Gallipoli campaign had been defeated and Churchill ousted. In 1944, during World War II, the German high command could not be absolutely certain where the D-Day landings would take place right up until the last minute. But in 1915, the Turkish high command knew early on that the British forces would be heading for the Gallipoli beaches as the Royal Navy started shelling the Gallipoli coast two months before the actual landings.
Churchill was turned down by the army when he initially asked for forces to be dispatched, so he had to proceed without them. There was no combined operation commander-in-chief to whom he could turn. In mid-March, the Turks received further advance notice as the Royal Navy shelled parts of the Gallipoli coast but abandoned the operation abruptly when three battleships were sunk by mines. Then the Royal Navy and Churchill belatedly learned that the troops would be provided for the operation after all. Having received abundant notice of what to expect, the Turks energetically set about improving their defences. On or after April 25th, the British, the French and the Anzacs were all able to land at Gallipoli, but not to further invade. With deep irony, the operation which was supposed to change the battle in the World War I in France and Belgium only ended up repeating it. For the rest of 1915, the Gallipoli invasion led only to more inconclusive trench warfare until it was decided to withdraw from Gallipoli at the end of the year. The list of casualties makes sorry reading even today. 21,255 British, 10,000 French, 8,709 Australian, 2,721 New Zealanders, and 1,358 Gurkhas and Sikhs from the British Indian Army all died in order to produce an inconclusive result. The only positive result was that Churchill was unfairly blamed for the fiasco he could not command and then went into relative political wilderness until Gallipoli memories had dimmed and he could do in 1940 what he could not do in 1915. One of the notable aspects of the Dardanelles campaign was the warm and enduring Anzac friendship with the Turks. Trench warfare in Western Europe helped to breed a basic hatred of Germans which endured through to World War II. But in 1934, the Turkish lieutenant colonel who had led the Turkish forces against the Anzacs, Kemal Ataturk, welcomed the first Australian, New Zealanders and British soldiers to come back to Gallipoli with the following words, which are now inscribed on the Kemal Ataturk Memorial in Canberra, and the Ataturk Memorial in Wellington. So far, the only memorials to a former enemy commander in both capital cities. Kemal Ataturk's salute was, quote, Those heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives, you are now lying in the soil of a friendly country, therefore rest in peace. There is no difference between the Johnnies and the Mammoths to us where they lie side by side, here in this country of ours. You, the mothers, who sent their sons from faraway countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom and are in peace, and having lost their lives in this land, they have become our sons as well." Unquote. Why does Australia continue to fervently commemorate the Gallipoli defeat? I've always felt personally that the commemorations were tied to the issue of national identity. In October 2008, there was a very interesting exchange in the press of views on this between former Prime Minister Paul Keating and then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. 
Keating felt that the crucial battle against the Japanese in New Guinea in 1943 was much more a crucial factor in developing national identity. Quote, Dragged into service by the British imperial government in an ill-conceived and poorly executed campaign, we were cut to ribbons and none of it in the defence of Australia. Without seeking to simplify the then bonds of empire or to diminish the bravery of our own men, we still go on as if the nation was born again or even was redeemed at Gallipoli, which is an utter and complete nonsense. For these reasons, I have never been to Gallipoli and I never will, unquote. But Kevin Rudd emphatically rejected this view, quote, On the question of Gallipoli, for me it is absolutely fundamental to the Australian national identity. Gallipoli was such a searing national experience at the time and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of brave Australians lost their lives. That is part of our national consciousness. It is part of our national psyche. It is part of our national identity. And I, as Prime Minister of the country, am absolutely proud of it. Unquote. <laughs>